John Kelly is running the Pennine Way. Almost 450 kilometres of bone-shattering terrain. He's trying to break the record for the fastest ever time. And it's getting dark. That second night is when things get real. This is a moment when things can start to go really wrong. Where you're at the edge and you're at your limit for so long, it's so easy to to stumble off of that edge and and crash and burn and, and, and you're done. John was just thinking to himself, I've been going too long to give up now. Uh, you know, I've got 100 miles to run and, and I've got 24 hours left and by itself that, that seems like quite the undertaking, uh, especially when you've already gone as far as I have. But stack that amount of time up against everything else and it's, it's nothing. So, so why stop? Why let yourself ease up when you're that close to everything that you've worked for, everything that these people have come out to support you for, Uh, So, you know, finish it. Finish the job. I'm Rob Pope. I'm from Red Bull. This is How To Be Superhuman, Series 2. In this episode, I'm talking to John Kelly. Now, John never expected to become an internationally renowned ultra runner. He wasn't much of a track athlete at school or college. But after putting in the miles in the Tennessee Hills and doing his research, John completed maybe the hardest foot race in the world. Barclay Marathons, a 100-mile-plus off-trail race through some brutal terrain where you'll climb double the height of Everest from sea level during the five laps. He became only the 50th person ever to finish the race. A couple of years later, he moved to England and discovered a new culture of running, fell running. In 2020... He took on the Pennine Way, a 268-mile moorland track through northern England. He broke the record for the first time in 30 years. Then, the following week, someone else broke John's record. He was gutted, obviously. But he was determined to take it back. But John started his sports career off the track. Yep, he was a sports talk radio host at North Carolina State University. But as a sports fan and commentator, he was constantly disappointed. Uh, Cincinnati Bengals fan in the NFL. They haven't even won a playoff game since the Soviet Union was a thing. Texas Rangers in baseball, they've never won a World Series. And and so I, I kind of said, 
maybe I should just focus on competing myself in things. Um, maybe that'll be a bit more successful. So John went from frustrated fan to aspiring runner. And he applied the same analytical rigour he used as a radio host to his training. I devoured every piece of information, every race report I could get my hands on. And essentially at that point was just trying to, to copy anything that I'd seen. He started winning races and then began competing in marathons. He was getting good, but not that good. Most of my longer distances to that point was kind of just informal trail running, multi-day long distance backpacking in the US, what we call fat ass events that are people just showing up at the trails and, and no aid stations, no rewards, no nothing. Just it's, it's essentially a glorified group run. But there was one iconic race that he'd been fixated on since he started running. The Barclay Marathons. Now in its 35th year, it's seen around a thousand brave souls toe the line. Of those, only 15 people have ever finished. And it took nine years for the first to make it. Well, why is it so hard? The lay of the land. It's all brambles and briars and bogs. James L. Ray, Dr. Martin Luther King's assassin, was locked up around there in the Brushy Mountain Penitentiary. When he escaped, he barely got through eight miles in 60 hours. That's how thick the bush is. When he heard this, a runner called Gary Cantrell, a.k.a. Lazarus Lake, Reckoned he could do better. Get at least a hundred miles away. Well, he couldn't. Few people could. So he set up a race where simply finishing was at the limit of human endurance. Generally, if you just finish, that means you won. Uh, there have only been a few years where more than one people have finished. Frankly, given his level of experience at the time, it was nuts for John to even contemplate entering Barclay. But there was a particular reason his heart was set on it. Yeah, so I grew up there just right across the road from where the Barclay Marathons takes place. My family's been on that land for 200 years now, which in America, that's forever, pretty much. There's even a mountain named after the Kelly family, right next to the Barclay course. John grew up chasing his cousins around those hills, and every year as a boy, he saw these crazed-looking runners emerging half-dead from those thick briars. He felt like the race, this terrain, was in his blood. So he decided to sign up for it. I largely got in uh, on being the hometown kid. And uh, yeah, that was that was quite the awakening. And uh, I had uh, honestly no idea uh, what I was doing. I kind of panicked and said, I, how do I train for this? I don't know how to train. I guess I should run up hills. Where's a hill? There's a hill. I should go run up that hill. And I just went and ran up every hill that I could. Probably not the worst idea. The race is at least 100 miles long. Nobody ever really seems to know. 
lapped five laps of a looped course with a total elevation double that of Everest from sea level. That's 60,000 feet, twice as high as a cruising jumbo jet. One of the most nerve-wracking things about the Barclay is that you don't really know the start time till one hour before. One hour! So you're constantly on edge, waiting, your body full of adrenaline. Then, with the peculiar sound of a conch being blown, the countdown begins. One hour later, Laz Lake lights a cigarette and John, the hometown kid, starts running. You get in that dense forest and everything looks the same. And, you know, if you get separated by 100 meters from someone, they're gone. You can't see them anymore. And you look around and, and that's that. You can't make heads or tails of, of where you're going. A big proportion of the loops are off trail through thick, thick forest with the conditions underfoot being a mixture of dense undergrowth, hidden rocks, mud so slippery it laughs in the face of trail shoes. And that's before you take into account the inch-long saw briars, which shred your legs, giving you wounds affectionately known as rat bites. John thought, ah, I grew up in those hills. I'd been flushing grouse out of those thickets for my dad since I was, you know, eight years old. So I was just, you know, what's the big deal? Let's go. He thought being from there was going to give him a big advantage over the other runners. He got a little cocky and he went out hard, a little too hard. Well, so I, again, I, I didn't really know what I was doing at that point. I didn't have a lot of experience. And my main mistake was thinking that, you know, I'll, I'll fuel with, with sports bars and, and energy gels for this entire time. That's That's got to be the most efficient way. That's got to be the most calories per per weight and whatnot and and after 30 plus hours of of nothing but engineered processed sugar products your stomach just kind of says no i'm good no no more of that john made it through two loops of the course okay but on the third loop he could only stomach one sports gel and that wasn't going to be enough i was shot I was out of fuel and I couldn't get any more fuel in my body. And I had never been in that state before. Uh, my family was there crewing for me. They had never seen anyone in that state before. They were wondering if I needed to go to the emergency room, um, as out of it as I looked. And so, um, yeah, I, I didn't continue on. I've seen photos of John after his first attempt at the Barclay. He looked like he needed more than just one more gel. Imagine that kind of dead inside vibe. Like most people, John didn't finish the Barclay. But unlike most people, he hadn't had enough yet. The next year, in 2016, he went back. This time, he finished one more loop, which probably meant about 100 miles in reality. But he couldn't finish the course. The thing is, John just knew he had a lot more to give. He just did. So in 2017, he went back again, determined to finally finish this damn thing off. Remember how they only give you an hour's notice till the start? 
Well, this year, the start was 1.42 a.m. It was the kind of fog where, you know, you, you can stick your hand out in front of your face and, and you can't see it. And so we, we got off to a bad start. Everything looks the same anyway. And you ain't got GPS. John periodically got lost and unlost many times, but he pushed through and this time he made it to the final loop. That final loop was, uh, was a whole different world though. The fifth loop of the Barclay is not just the last bit of a race. No, it's, a, it's a whole different mental and physical state of being that most humans don't ever get to and most of us don't want to get to something that I had never experienced and the year before when I finished four loops you think oh you were you were so close you were almost there and and no no I I wasn't that that fifth loop is is just something different entirely John had been running for almost 48 hours now with little sleep and little food his body was starting to break down he couldn't go any longer without a little rest. I took a number of trailside naps. I tried to do it at places that had the most miserable conditions, like where the wind swept over a ridge or something that I knew after 10 minutes, my body would be more uncomfortable lying there than not sleeping and and I would wake up. So that worked well. Uh, Then it got rainy and cold and foggy uh, maybe that helped keep me awake, uh, but all the same, I had to, to grab some refuse, plastic bag, and a, a prison hat to keep myself warm, and ended up kind of on the last peak. After his nap, John had only one downhill run left. I, I collected all my pages, just had to get down a nice, easy trail to the finish, and blanked out for about 20 minutes. 20 minutes just disappeared from my watch. I hadn't gone anywhere. I still have no idea what I did during those 20 minutes, if I fell asleep for a bit or or just wandered around or what. How do you keep mentally in the moment there? Because we've talked in the past about sort of ultra runners and they, they can hallucinate. They can lose 20 minutes on top of a mountain. How do you snap back into the game and just say, I need to move. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. Uh, and especially at that point, I, again, I was still, I would consider myself relatively inexperienced compared to now. Uh, and, and now I have this huge reservoir of memories to draw on where I've kind of been there before. And I know you've been there before. You can pull out of this. This is how you pulled out of it. You're, you're going to do it. Uh, but for me, really, it's it's about lowering the number of things that my mind needs to be processing to a level that it it actually still has enough capacity to focus. I wish I had a sports psychologist to properly explain this to me, but what I reckon it boils down to basically is you just need to keep telling your legs to move one step in front of the other and maybe the fewer distractions, the better. So after I lost those 20 minutes on the final hill, I was just constantly reminding myself all the way down the mountain, you just have to touch the yellow gate. You just have to get there, touch the yellow gate, and you finished Barkley, and this is in fact really happening. You are not dreaming. This is happening. Touch the yellow gate. 
and just just on repeat just one thing fixate on it until you get there touch the yellow gate touch the yellow gate touch the yellow gate after almost 60 hours John made it down the hill to the famed yellow gate the finish line with 30 minutes to spare that sounds fairly comfortable but if he'd gone 30 seconds per hour slower he wouldn't have finished but he did a race only 15 people ever have three years after the first attempt but the come down from the high that was harder than he anticipated that took me a while to be honest Barkley had been kind of my my big holy grail for many years. It had been that big goal that was out there that I was constantly striving for and, and reaching for and, and that pulled me along. And after finishing it, it is kind of like, what, what, what now? What, what do I do now? In 2019, John Kelly moved to England, where yours truly lives and runs, and the different landscape here opened up new horizons for him. There was one particular trail that ignited his imagination, Britain's first national trail, the truly iconic Pennine Way. This 268-mile trail runs the length of northern England and takes a bite out of Scotland too. Its course takes you over farmland, rugged moorland, bleak, rocky outcrops, and it comes with a hefty dose of elevation change to boot. But it wasn't just the landscape that made John want to do this race. After all, it wasn't going to be a Sunday afternoon jolly. This was going to be gruelling stuff. The Pennine Way had a 30-year unbeaten speed record set by a chap called Mark Hartley, a British ultra-running Hall of Famer. And John? Well, of course, he wanted to beat that record. It was one of those things that I felt was right at the limits of what I was capable of, maybe even slightly beyond them. And so it was it was a big challenge to be sure, but those those things are, are perfect for me. I would rather have a goal that is slightly out of reach and fall short knowing I went as far as I possibly could than have an easy one that I accomplish, but never know if I could have gone farther. So in twenty twenty John is at the start line of the Pennine Way in Edale, a pretty little village in the Peak District. And very soon, it becomes clear that he's not in good nick. For pretty much the whole way, I was internally bleeding uh, somewhere, which uh, did not make for the, uh, we'll just say, the most pleasant experience. And on top of that, I, I couldn't get any food down. I wasn't eating hardly anything. Uh, and so that that really uh, slowed me down and, and sapped my energy. Uh, and 
yeah, it was unlike anything I've ever experienced before. Somehow, he was managing to still stay on pace. After the attempt, it turned out it was a stomach ulcer. But not only did he finish, he broke Mike Hartley's 30-year-old record by half an hour. He had to go deep inside himself to beat it. And you'd think John would be satisfied with himself by now. But a week later, one week, a fellow runner and friend, Damien Hall, ran that Pennine way. And it beat John by a whole three hours. Yeah, it, it was tough. And, and I'd be lying if I said it. The amount that he beat it by didn't make it tougher. Um, for most of the past year, I, I've, I had a picture of, of Damien and myself and Mike Hartley after Damien's run posted right here uh, above my computer monitor. That if I ever needed a, a little bit of an extra kick to get myself out and uh, go for a run, th- th- there it was. This is sounding very rocky to me. You know, that bit where Stallone's got the photo of Ivan Drago on his wall and he screws it up. I know, I know, I know. I always bring up Rocky, but he's useful in all life situations. The following year, John decided to go back to the Pennine Way. And he wasn't there for the sightseeing. I I wanted... I, I don't know if revenge is, is the right word. But yeah, I, I wanted to, to go back and uh, kind of get that record back to to reclaim it from Damien. Frankly, revenge is the best motivation I know. Nothing puts a fire under your arse like the taste for it. There's been a lot of joking over the past year of of every time I do something, well, I guess Damien's doing it a week later. And and so every time one of those comments, well, maybe funny at first, it was just poking me. Just kept poking me and, and, and jabbing me and, and building that motivation to, to get back out there and, and do this. So May the 15th, 2021, John finds himself at one end of the Pennine Way again. This time, John decided to go north to south, the most gruesome part first. And that first section in the Cheviots, it's a killer. There's a little diversion you've got to take up the Cheviot itself which is the highest hill in the range. And it's not even on the route. It's a bonus torture. And last year, you know, I was spent. The weather was awful. It was clagged in. It was night. It was cold. It was raining. It was windy. And that little out and back took forever. Just endless. Every turn I went around, oh, this is it. Surely that's it. This has to be it. We're there, right? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And this year, starting off with it uh, in great conditions, it, it, it was nothing. It was over before I knew it. When we got there and I said, oh, was, was that it? Okay, well, let's, let's go. This is, this is good. This is nice. John needed to cover over 100 miles on that first day to stay on track for his desired time. Mentally, he was flying, but his body was already crying out. Things start to hurt. And it's, it's really tough, uh, again, to think about that and think, wow, my, my legs are hurting. I have 200 miles to go. Should my legs still be hurting? 
surely they should still be great if I have to make it that far. And then you remember, oh, well, yeah, I just ran 50 miles through the mountains. I, I guess it makes sense that they're hurting and that's just how they're going to be. And we'll deal with it and, and hopefully they don't get worse. I met John at the end of his second day, about 160 miles in. I saw his approach as I was busy trying to stuff a sausage roll into my mouth in another example of elite nutrition, and I set off after him. I could see at this point his gait just looked awkward. He was collapsing in on his ankles, and I just thought, oh, wow, this guy's not going to have fun in the next few miles. So I overtook him, and he he saw my Tennessee socks because I'm a bit of a fan of the state. And uh, I think I like to think we bonded. I asked him, said, you know, shall we chat? Uh, and he says, you can talk all you want, mate. I might choose to answer. I might not. And so, of course, you know me. I talked and occasionally he talked sometimes to me and sometimes to his feet. I remember a particular moment after a field where he'd done nothing but swear, where he came out with this perfect line. Feet, do your f- job. <laughs> I thought this guy is struggling, but he was still moving. And I, I, I was running with him, but I was still pretty tired myself. And I'd never let him know. Whenever I was feeling tired, I'd go, John, you're smashing this, mate. But that was secretly an internal cry for help. <laughs> and so this continued for the, for the next 20 odd miles. And when I left him, John was doing really well. And I even remember joking with my support crew at that point. They told me that the forecast the next evening at the finish looked good. And I said, well, what about the afternoon? And so I was getting a little bit cocky there, I think. And uh, of course, still a long ways to go at that point. He might have been joking around, but he knew that this was the make or break moment. He divided his race up into three major sections The first bit, we knew there was the tough terrain. The second bit is where you start to run out of fuel and you're so far away from the finish that you can't really imagine it. But the final section, you're just destroyed. Going into that second night, uh, on again, any of these multi-day events, that second night is when things get real. And people might look at the tracker and think, oh, well, he's like four hours ahead with just 80 miles. That's easy. He's got it. It's in the bag. But all of these things where you're at the edge and you're at your limit for so long, it's so easy to to stumble off of that edge and and crash and burn and, and, and you're done. John started to stagger and slip up at that point. And when he took a longer nap than usual, his whole core temperature dropped. And that could be dangerous, could even be the end. So at this point, so much has gone into any one of these efforts from me, from my family, from my support crew, uh, through training, through preparation, through the early stages of the run itself, that at any point in time, relatively speaking, what's left is trivial. Uh, You know, I've got 100 miles to run and and I've got 24 hours left and by itself that that seems like quite the undertaking, especially when you've already gone as far as I have, but stack that amount of time up against everything else and it's, it's nothing. So why stop? Why let yourself ease up when you're that close? to everything that you've worked for, everything that these people have come out to support you for. So finish it. 
finish the job. Finish the job. And take the record back. Now the final stretch. The landscape's not actually that tough. Most of the big hills are behind you. But the big challenge is just making your feet do their job. They were on strike. Those last stretches were, were pretty rough. I was pretty out of it at times. There were, uh, I've never hallucinated in, in these things. Maybe I'll mistake an object for something differently, but, but I've, I've never had a full on hallucination. But what does happen is I, I have trouble keeping my eyes open. And I kind of lose the distinction between whether it's, it's real or a dream. Some people have dreams that seem real. I have real life experiences that seem like dreams in these situations. And so just like Barkley, I'm telling myself, no, this is, this is actually happening. You, you have to keep running. And, and one of my support runners had bright yellow shoes. I was just fixated on them. Follow the shoes. Follow the shoes. Follow the bright yellow shoes. They'll get you to the finish. After 58 hours and four minutes, John reached the finish line at the old Nags Head pub in Edale when it all began for him. He'd ripped that record back by, appropriately enough, about three hours. It was the first day the pubs were open after England's third lockdown. Imagine having your first pint after that. And it's always just such a relief uh, at that point. There's, there's kind of two points at the end of one of these things for me. There's the point at which I know I'm going to do it, uh, where that's that's the big, powerful, emotional one for me. And then there's the point at which I actually reach the finish, uh, which is just just relief. Um, Laz, I think, has described it as just a, a, you know a puppet having its strings cut and just collapsing, and and you're there. There, sat in a flower pot in a sleepy village with a huge crowd of about two dozen. Oh, the glory. I just don't really think that John was in it for the spoils, though. He just wanted to be the best he could be. Now, next time on How to Be Superhuman Series 2, we speak to Aaron Anderson, the Swedish athlete and adventurer for whom it seems no challenge is too great to overcome. And we're sitting there chatting, and he, kind of out of nowhere, he says, man, hey, let's go climb Kebnekaise, the highest mountain of Sweden. And my reaction is like, dude, have you seen this thing that I'm sitting in? And I and I said no, because I've never done an adventure. Like, I've never climbed a mountain. Nobody in the wheelchair had climbed this mountain before. It's like, come on, man, what are you thinking? And in terms of your own superhuman exploits, last week I heard from Paul Fagan about his friend Brendan Prince, who's currently on a mission to become the first person to stand up paddleboard around the entire UK. Now, if you want to know what he's up to, or indeed where he's up to, go to thelongpaddle.co.uk and send him some words of encouragement. I'm sure he'll appreciate it. And also, don't be shy if you want to nominate yourself or maybe a friend if you know something superhuman that's going down, because this is the place where that kind of stuff belongs. <laughs>